The free seats should be visible now. You can slide in and, and grab one if there's a few. Good. It's a delight to, uh, to worship with you today. Um, as a point of pastoral prayer, we just want to uh, spend some time praying for our church plant down in Philadelphia. There's been some wonderful things going on with those guys. Um, and they are into a season now where they're gathering on a weekly basis on Sunday nights. And so I had a good talk with a Jay, who is a pastor here that we sent down to Philadelphia to plant. And specifically told them that we would be asking God to add some new believers to their team, which is a real strong team at this point, um, who would be ready to lock arms with them on mission and loving and serving those in North Philadelphia. And just begging God to be good to them and to bring some new life to some folks who have not come to see the glory of the gospel of the grace of God in the face of Christ. So will you just pray for our brothers and sisters with me in this time? Father, tonight, some friends that we love dearly will be gathering over word and sacrament to be drawn to the arms of a loving father, to celebrate the victory of his son, to be filled with his spirit. I pray that as they do that tonight, your grace would be with them. I pray for our brother Ajay, that his shoulders would stay straight, that his heart would be filled and overflowing in you, that he would have great courage in the gospel as he announces it to his team, to his church, and to his city. I pray that in your grace, you would add to the number of that church in this season, that many would come to see the glory of your Son the love of your heart, the power of your spirit. I pray that in a a special way today when they gather to worship, they would be reminded of the victory of Christ and assured of their hope of salvation and stand firm and have much joy. Would you be with our brothers and sisters who are there? We trust you to hear this prayer and to answer it. In the good name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with us. Um, This is the time in our service when we sit under the preaching of the word. So the text that we read together um, will be expanded and exposited for us to hear. But it's not just words to your ears. It's word to your hearts. So get yourself ready to be cut and to change and to repent and to believe and to be conformed to the image of Christ through the power of his word heard in community by his spirit. Let's do that together. Brent. When Jesse and I first moved out to the Boston area from Wisconsin, uh, my wife Jesse and I, people back in Wisconsin, our family, used to ask us um, questions like, how do you like living in Boston? What's it like out there? They were kind of fascinated that we had moved from the Midwest out to urban East Coast. One of the questions I got a lot, though, um, that was interesting to me was, how are people in Boston different from people in Wisconsin? So we had this kind of standard list of answers, like, for example, I noticed that your eyes don't light up as much out here when I talk about ice fishing as they did in Wisconsin. And for the longest time, Jessie thought thought that some of the other teachers at the school she taught at must have forgotten to put the letter R on the alphabet chart, because the kindergartners didn't know how to use that letter. But uh, when I was being more serious or a little bit more reflective, one of the things that I shared, especially during the first year that we moved out here, was that it seemed to me that people in Boston were a little bit more skeptical than people in Wisconsin. And what I meant by that was, 
it seemed like the people that I met out here or just encountered casually were a little bit slower to receive the messages that they heard from the world coming at them as truth. They were a little bit more cautious at what they would accept uh, to be a true message um, and maybe chalk that up to my own naivety. So for an example, when this first um, kind of came to mind, when I first started thinking about this, I went to Harvard Square once with a friend who was from the city. And keep in mind, I was from a place, a rural place, where we don't have public homelessness. And just processing the different way he and I responded to homelessness kind of was where this idea, this skepticism came from. I noticed that when a homeless person came up to us and said, hey, I'm hungry, can I have some change? The message I heard was, hey, I'm hungry, can I have some change? The message he heard was, hey, I'm strung out or I'm, I'm sober and I wish I wasn't. Can you fix this for me? Can you give me some change so I can get a fix? Um, so I kept kind of thinking about that. And, and the longer I was out here, the more I began to realize it makes sense to be skeptical if you live in an urban area because you are bombarded by so many messages day in and day out that you have to carefully sort through asking yourselves which ones are true, which ones aren't. Not long after we moved out here, after Jesse and I um, moved to Peabody, which we had to learn wasn't Peabody, it was Peabody, um, my car, I, I drove over a bad bump on a Peabody street, and one of the engine mounts on the bottom of my Volkswagen broke loose, and I had to coast my car down to a shop at the bottom of the hill that I happened, thankfully, to know was there. Um, I took it in. It was the end of the day, so I left the car there. The next day, I got a call from the shop, and the guy said, yeah, I took a look at your car. You broke an engine mount on the bottom of your engine. It's going to cost about $1,200 to fix well, I guess I had been here long enough to have a clue about how careful I needed to be with these messages. So I went into the shop, I stuck my head under the car, and I thought, I'm not a mechanic, but that just doesn't seem right. So I had him give me the car, I crippled it across town to a mechanic I had seen in the past and trusted, and found out that it was a $5 fix, it was a broken bolt. Um, and I realized I need, I need to become a little bit more skeptical. I need to be less willing to receive the messages that, that I'm hearing as truth. So it kind of became a, a pet project in my mind, thinking about skepticism and living in the city and the messages that you hear. I especially started paying attention to advertising. And what I began to realize is that it's not just a distinctively Boston characteristic to be skeptical. People in Wisconsin are skeptical, too. It's really a part of the age that we live in. Um, uh, like I said, I, I kind of grew to be fascinated by advertising, thinking about the hype that is built into advertising, how how marketers develop senses of need in consumers. One of the ads that was really fascinating to me, for whatever reason, have any of you guys ever heard of ShamWow or seen, seen the ShamWow ad? This guy comes on, he says, hey, I'm Vince from ShamWow. Every time you use it, you're going to say wow. Well, if you paid attention to those ads, which are absurd, when the, first, when the ad first came out in like 2007, Vince would tell you that the, that the ShamWow could hold up to 20% of its own volume in liquid. And I thought, wow, I really would say wow. That's, that's pretty impressive. But he got called on it. Consumer Reports ran an article where they said he was lying and it was 10% and he had to change it. But still the idea is there that if you live in this culture of advertising that we live in, you're constantly being bombarded by hype, by things being built up to be something that they can't possibly be. And if you believe the message, you're set up for disappointment. So this hype leads to disappointment. And if you're, if you're smart enough to learn eventually, it learns to the skepticism. You learn to put up these filters. You sort the messages that come into you from the world around you, and maybe more so in urban cultures. 
Well, the question that that leaves you with, if you're an optimistic person who believes that there can be hope in this world and hopes that there are true messages, is how do I sort through the messages that are coming at me? How do I figure out which ones are true and leave the ones that are lies? How do I know when my mechanic is telling me the truth and I really do need to spend $1,200 or it's just $5? Interestingly, as we've been reading through this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I think that if we could jump back in time, we would find that we can really relate to them even more than you might realize. I would say this morning that their culture was just as much a culture of skepticism as much as ours is. Um, We've talked a little bit about the history of Thessalonica over the last couple of weeks, and a couple of points that I just want to reiterate and bring out. Early in the the history of Thessalonica, um, they, they were granted an independence by the Roman Empire a couple of centuries before Paul and Silvanus and Timothy got there. Remember that Thessalonica was on the north, north side of the Mediterranean Sea, across the sea from Alexandria, from Egypt, but it was heavily influenced by the Roman Empire. And because of where they fit into the whole political system, they were granted a degree of political independence from Rome. So without getting into that, the, the message that, that the Thessalonians were hearing was that even though they didn't have to worship the emperor, even though they didn't have to print the picture of the emperor on their coins, the emperor represented hope in that culture. He represented that Pax Romana that you learned about in high school and college, the peace of Rome. It was a, supposed to be the restoration of the, the Mediterranean area, um, an influx of, of culture, of, of industry, of entertainment. It was the hope that, they, that they, they staked their lives on, even in Thessalonica, where they didn't have to. But what was interesting um, was there was this cycle that took place during those couple of hundred years before Paul ever came with the gospel to Thessalonica. You hear about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it was punctuated with civil war all the way throughout. So an emperor would take the throne in Rome. These towns would stake their hope on the gospel that this, that this emperor was the solution to their problems. But over time, some other, some other contender would come along and assassinate the emperor or defeat the emperor and then go to towns where there were, where there were temples set up to the emperor uh, and basically punish that town. At one point, Thessalonica put all their weight behind these two guys, Brutus and Cassius, who were contenders to become emperor. They won, which was great for Thessalonica, but then Cassius killed Brutus and came back and punished the whole town of Thessalonica. So without getting too much into the history, the point that I want to make is that over and over and over, the history of Thessalonica was we put our hope in the emperor, we put our hope in the message that he proclaims, the gospel, really, of this, this emperor as our hope, and it leads to disappointment, and it should lead to skepticism. Even going back before the Roman Empire, the history of Thessalonica goes back even to a connection with the Egyptian Empire. They had these traditional gods. Matt has mentioned Dionysus. I think Jeremiah mentioned Dionysus a couple of times, too. This god of fertility, his symbol was this phallus. And the hope was that if you worshipped in the temple of Dionysus, you would have fertile agriculture, your business would be uh, successful, your life would be good. That was the hope of the gospel of Dionysus. But Dionysus was a false god at best, a demon at worst. He was an idol who couldn't possibly fulfill the hopes that these people staked on him. So again, you see that cycle. Hope in Dionysus, hope in the emperor, leading to uh, disappointment, leading to skepticism. Um, kind of fast-forwarding back to our culture, as you think about the connection there, Jesse and I watched the movie The Wizard of Oz last week, and I, I just had been thinking about it as I prepared for this movie. What a, 
a paradigm or an example of this dynamic in our culture that you can see in the Wizard of Oz. It, it, funnily, fun, funnily enough, fun, funny enough, uh, I get tongue-tied when I'm up here. For a 1950s kids movie, I think that the Wizard of Oz really captures a change that happened in our culture, especially during during this last century, century, where we moved from being a culture that was willing to accept what the world told us about how the universe worked to a culture that was no longer willing to just accept what the world told us about how the universe works. So what I, what I mean by this, as you watch that movie, the whole first half of the movie is this build-up where you see these four characters, Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion, who each have this profound, deep, symbolic need. They need to find their way home. They need a heart. They need a brain. They need courage. And they go on this epic journey. And on, along their journey, people come up to them and keep telling them, you have got to see the wizard. The wizard is the guy who can solve your problem. Well, you know that the trajectory of the movie is that they finally see the wizard. They go on this goose chase to get the witch's broom that he sends them on. And when they come back and they've done the hard work, what they find out, and this is our culture's message to us, is that the wizard was a scam. The wizard was the, the, the ultimate sham wow. The wizard was this little nerdy chubby guy behind this curtain who, who, who gave this gospel of hope that I can be what you need but when it, all, you know, when it all came out in the wash, it was, just, it was just another powerless little person. And the ultimate message is that the power was in each one of them all along to find what they need. As we, as we work through this sermon this morning, I think um, it'll be interesting to, to just kind of think about that dynamic. So going back to that question, how do you know which messages are true? How do you know which messages you can accept? And thinking about the Thessalonians... And the culture that they were swimming in of skepticism, of disappointment, of, of false hope, of false gospel. The text that Matt, Matt read earlier was from uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And when you think about the world that they were living in and the skepticism that they should have had, I think it just should be powerfully clear how, how much of a miracle it was that Paul could say to them, we thank God constantly that when you received the message that you heard from us, you received it not as the words of men, but you accepted it as the very word of God, which is at work in the lives of the believers. In this culture of skepticism, somehow the Thessalonians, a number of them, were able to hear these words that this man came and spoke to them that sounded something like these other false gospels that they had been hearing. And they heard it as the very word of God, and they accepted it, and they allowed it to change their lives. When, Ma, when Matt first set up the sermon series, he told us, if you remember, that the rhetoric of 1 Thessalonians is epideictic. And I just want to bring that up again. I think it's really critical to how we read this verse. Remember, he told us that epideictic rhetoric is a way of challenging your, your listener or your, your reader to continue to do something that they're doing. It's a way of giving instructions to your reader, not by saying, do this, but by saying, you've been doing this, keep it up. That's the whole flow of the letter of 1 Thessalonians. I think it's especially important here at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. What Paul is saying is, you receive the word of God rightly. You're entering a rotary. The solution is keep up receiving the word of God the way you did when I first came with it. I think that if Paul was here in our day and age, I know we've been zipping back and forth a lot, I think that he would say the same message to us. I think he would say, you are coming into a rotary in your culture. You live in a world of skepticism, of a lot of false gospels, a lot of false hope. You need to receive the message of the gospel just like the Thessalonians did.
So in light of that, um, what I want to do this morning is just spend some time really jumping into 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The way I want to do that is by asking three questions of the text. The first question is, what is this word? What was the message that Paul preached in Thessalonica that he had so much confidence in, that was so powerful, that he could call it the very word of God, and then he, he told them would be the thing that would carry them through this rotary? The second question that I want to ask of, of the text is, how are we supposed to believe that this was the word of God in this world of competing false gospels of wrong messages? And then the final question that I want to ask is, what was so special about the way the Thessalonians received the word of God that Paul not only commended them for it, but is exhorting them to continue do it, to do it and that we should continue to do it? So before I do that, just let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father God, your word is more to be desired by us than much fine gold. It is sweeter than honey to us, Lord. God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray for special grace from you that we, a fallen sinful people, redeemed by your Son, can hear the words of the King of kings, of the God of the universe, and hear it for what it is, not the words of men, but as the very word of God. Lord, I pray that you would use me to preach clearly and precisely and faithfully. And I pray for the hearers this morning um, that you would protect their hearts and ears for, from anything that is of me and not of you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So going to that first question, what was this message that Paul had so much confidence in that he would call it the very word of God? I like to read sermons. That's maybe a little bit weird. I enjoy it. I like to listen to sermons. So I really wish that I had a transcript of exactly this whole sermon series that Paul preached when he was in Thessalonica. I think that would be the, the ultimate. Um, but we don't have that. What we do have, and what I want to turn your attention to really briefly, is sort of an outline built into First Thessalonians of what the message was that Paul preached when he was in Thessalonica. There are a bunch of little hints scattered throughout the letter that we can look to to get some idea of what he was preaching. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any one of them because that's what we've been doing throughout this series and are going to continue to do, but I want to just kind of turn your attention to a few of them. The first one that I'm going to just touch on is in, in chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes to them, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. And this is where he tells them what he had preached. He reminds them of the message he preached. He says, For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So I think last week Matt preached about suffering for the gospel. I wasn't able to be here, but we've, we've gotten into that a little bit. But the point that I want to bring out is that part of the message that Paul spoke to the Thessalonians when he was there was that suffering is a part of the Christian life, or at the very least, that he was bound to suffer as part of his uh, discipleship of Jesus Christ. Um, the next text that I will quickly point you to is at the beginning of chapter 4. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That sermon's coming up. But 
another big chunk of what Paul preached when he was in Thessalonica. And then he's now reminding them of is how you serve God, how you live your life to conform to the will of God and to please God. And it was an ethical message. There was an ethical component of the message. Um, as you continue in through chapter 4, Paul specifically drills down into sexual purity. And we're going to unpack that more in a couple of weeks. Another really similar short, short verse is um, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we've seen that he talked a little bit about suffering in the Christian life. He talked about ethics and how you live to please God. And he's kind of hitting that, how you live to please God, again here in chapter 2. But the thing that's really fascinating about chapter 2 that I want to point out, something you can miss if you don't stop and listen closely. When you think back to what I was talking about earlier, the, the dynamic of being in the Roman Empire, there were certain words and phrases that basically belonged to the empire. These were words like kingdom. And what I, what I think is so profound that Paul is doing here in chapter 2, he's reminding them that when I came to you, I told you there's another kingdom coming. I took the words of the, of the Roman Empire and I redeemed them. I, I stole them and put them in their right context, which is the right kingdom of God. He does the same thing at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that, the, listen to this phrase, that the day of the Lord will be coming like a thief in the night. You hear that phrase all the time, the day of the Lord will be coming like a thief in the night. We talk about it usually in terms of the coming kingdom of God. If you, if you were able to read that in its original context, you would see that there's an expression in there that Paul really legally had no right to use, but he could because he belonged to a different kingdom. When he says the day of the Lord, that's a powerful phrase in that culture that means the king is coming, the emperor is coming, and he has a special message. Even the word gospel that is used throughout the New Testament is one of those words that Christians redeemed out of the Roman uh, imperial culture that meant the king is coming with the message. Gospel means good news from the king. And what Paul is doing all throughout this letter to the, to the Thessalonians is he's, is he's undermining this false hope of the Roman Empire, of this idea that the emperor is your hope for salvation. Um, it's like as if when, when Dorothy and the lion and the scarecrow and the tin men were walking down that hallway and they've got the witch's broom and they're still expectantly hoping to receive these deep needs from the wizard. It's like somebody popped out of a side door and said, wait, 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 wait. There's no real wizard down there. He's not for real. But there is a real wizard. There is a real wizard who can meet your needs. And in that Roman culture, this was just, this was a scandal, what he was doing, um, but profound. What he was doing is he was saying that this emperor who you have staked your hopes on, this kingdom, this piece of Rome that you have put your trust in is a hoax. It's going to come to nothing. But there is a real king, the king of kings in heaven, who is going to, who is going to be the fulfillment of your hope. Um, as I was thinking about that, and this, this context of how Paul was able to powerfully speak into this false gospel of emperor worship, I thought, am I really going to preach that in to Boston in 2009? What, why am I even going to bother and get into that? That is old history. We don't have an emperor. We don't worship Obama for the most part, right? Um, most of us anyway. Um, so we're not really in the fray of emperor worship the way they were in First Thessalonians. And then I kind of kept thinking about that. 
And I would actually tell you this morning that we do have a culture of emperor worship. But the emperor is not in Rome. He doesn't wear a toga. There are not statues on the street generally devoted to him. But I think the message of the world that we live in is that the emperor is sitting in every seat in this room and in every house surrounding our church. The false message of our culture that we live in today is that you are the emperor. You are the wizard of your life. You control your destiny, and you are the source of fulfillment to your hope for happiness, to success, to effective living. The message of our culture that we, that we get inundated with is that you, if you work hard enough, if you have a good attitude, if you get a good education, you can control the trajectory of your life. Um, a couple of, about a month ago, I spent a week out in Utah. I went through this training that the Army sent me to as a chaplain called Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, run by this Franklin Covey Institute. Stephen Covey wrote this popular book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anyway, for this week, we got trained in these, in these habits, and a lot of it was good, practical, kind of common sense stuff about living your life in a way that is happy and healthy and productive. But I got to the end of the week feeling like do you really expect me to go to fallen sinful people and with seven habits like keeping a calendar, teach them how to have a, a functional family? But that's the, message of our, that's the message of our culture is that if you apply these seven habits or if you work hard enough, you control your own destiny. This morning I want to tell you that is a false gospel. It is as false of a gospel as the idea that Pelagius, or that rather that Caesar or Augustus was a God. It is equally a false gospel. It is a false gospel because we are sinful, fallen people who desperately need a Savior to redeem us, to be our Christ. And on that note, I want to turn to what I think is the most um, precise, distilled summary of what Paul's message was when he was in Thessalonica. Uh, a few weeks ago, Matt read from Acts chapter 17. We get all these great hints in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, of what Paul was preaching at. But he drives at the core of it in what Luke says about Paul in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3. Paul says, or rather Luke writes of Paul, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. If you were a Roman, that might not make a lot of sense. But remember that the way, the way it's set up in Acts, Paul is speaking in a synagogue to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles. Um, if you think about the Jews who were in Thessalonica who would have been hearing Paul, you know, I talked earlier about the skepticism of Thessalonians. But drill that down a little bit to the Jews. There shouldn't have even really been Jews in Thessalonica, right? They should have been in Israel where they belonged, in the promised land that God has, had promised to their father uh, Abraham. And here they were way outside of the promised land in this uh, Roman-controlled city of Thessalonica. Um, the reason they were there uh, is really indicative of their whole life story. Less than 200 years before that, they had been released from exile. And when they tried to go home, they found their home occupied by other people. So they settled wherever they could. Here they are worshiping in a synagogue because uh, temple worship had never really been restored in the temple in Jerusalem. The whole life story of, of Israel, if you've read the Old Testament, if you heard our series this summer, the Jesus biographies, um, 
is that from the time of God's promises to Abraham, that he would give them a land, that he would bless them, that he would make them a blessing, uh, that through them he would bless all the nations. The whole life story of Israel is this uh, just pregnant expectation, this longing for the fulfillment of those promises. And over and over in their history, they have high points. Uh, The Davidic kingdom you think of, where the kingdom was united. They're experiencing prosperity and success, security. But over and over, stories like that ended in disappointment as kings sinned, as people rebelled and broke covenant with God. And so here they are, some point in the first century A.D., thousands of years of expecting to be restored and have these promises fulfilled. They've just been delivered from exile within a couple of centuries before that. And if anyone should be a skeptic in Jerusalem, or rather Thessalonica, it was the Jews in Thessalonica. If anyone had heard a message, this is the Christ, it was the diaspora Jews. It was the scattered Jews who had heard over and over, this guy is the Messiah. He's going to restore us to the promises of Abraham. Or this is the fulfillment of what the whole Old Testament is about. And over and over, disappointment. But somehow, when Paul walked into that synagogue and said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the Jews that were were there heard him say, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who you have been eagerly awaiting. And as we're fortunate to read in Acts, a number of them heard that message. They heard the message, which answers our first question, what was this message that Paul spoke to them? Jesus is the Christ. It's also the same answer to, to um, the issue of who is the emperor of our lives. It's not us. Obviously, it's not the Roman emperor. Jesus is the Christ. But that leads us really to question number two. How are we to believe that? Why, why should we accept that Paul had the authority to tell us who the Christ was? Um, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this answer. I'm not going to argue it as, a, as an apologist or try to prove to you. Um, but there's a, there's a two-part answer, I think, to that question. The first part, the reason why Paul had the authority to speak the gospel is because Jesus said so. When you read the, when you read the gospels, um, especially I've been spending some time in Matthew chapter 10 this week, you see this, uh, this transition in the middle. Um, Matthew chapter 10, I'd encourage you to go look at it this week if you have time. At the end of Matthew chapter 9, Um, Jesus has spent this period uh, developing this following who he calls his disciples. They're the people who followed him, who learned from him, who learned to be what he was like. But at the end of Matthew chapter 9, he says to this group, his disciples, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Go, therefore, and pray earnestly that God sends workers to bring in the harvest. And then immediately in chapter 10, what he does is he selects 12 of those disciples And he sends them out. And for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, you see another word that was absconded from the Roman culture, which is apostle. They are now called apostles, which means sent ones. They were sent out. As Jesus sends them, he he gives them uh, unique authority. He gives them the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. And that title, apostle, is just loaded with meaning. I was trying to think of how best to, to explain this. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie 300, which I hope most of you haven't, there's a, if you have, though, there's a really great illustration of this idea of apostle. At the very beginning, King Leonidas is in the Spartan kingdom, and this messenger comes to him from Xerxes, the Persian king. And this messenger tells Leonidas, Xerxes is preparing his army to come conquer your land. 
you can either submit and, you know, maybe he'll spare you. Or if you fight, you'll be destroyed and your lands will be destroyed and your women will be enslaved. And Leonidas is the tough guy in the movie. So he's like, ah, I'm not having any of that. We'll, we'll fight him and I'm going to kill you right here, right now. This messenger looks at him and like, you must be kidding, right? I'm the messenger from Xerxes. I speak with the authority of the king. And of course, Leonidas kills him anyway because it's you know, a fictitious movie. But the point being, these envoys, these apostles, had the authority to speak with the power of the king. If you hurt the, the, the messenger of the king, you hurt the king, and you had the retribution, the wrath of the king coming down on you. There was also a condition on their, on their power as an apostle, as a sent one. They had to speak the words of the king. They couldn't make it up. So you see this in the prophets, especially in the Old Testament. They begin a lot of their most powerful statements with this formula, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord. You know that what they're about to say when they preface it with thus says the Lord is directly from the mouth of the king. They're not making this up. They're speaking with the authority of the king. Well, when you see that over and over through the Gospels, that these guys are apostles, that's what it means. It means Jesus gave them the authority to speak the word of God. Now, Paul isn't one of those original 12, but as you read through the book of Acts and you read the other letters of the other 12, you can clearly see that they regard him fully as an apostle. Peter speaks specifically of Paul's writings as scripture, and Paul, with the knowledge of the other apostles, openly calls himself an apostle. Under, under the supervision of the other apostles who recognize his calling from God and his authority from God, Paul is able to say, just like the 12, Jesus told me that I could speak on behalf of God, but I can't make this up. This is coming directly from God. So that's part one of my answer to question number two. How did Paul have that authority? Jesus gave it to him. The second part, which really speaks more to us, is the kind of the pragmatic answer. And then Paul, Paul, Paul gets right to it here in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. I'll just read the end of it. He says, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at you, the believers. So because they accepted it, after the fact, they saw proof every day as their lives were changed. Um, Justin reminded me of uh, chapter 1, verse 10. It talks about um, turning from idols. Uh, and Paul's getting at the same thing there. Um, speaking of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, For they themselves, these other churches, report concerning us the kind of redemption we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The proof that we have when we look back at this message is that when the Thessalonians received this message, they turned from idols and they served the true and the living God. Not only does Jesus give Paul the authority to speak on behalf of God, but when we receive the message for what it truly is, the word of God, we see the proof worked out in our lives every day. Um, so like I said earlier, I, I, I know these aren't, these aren't great philosophical arguments. You could point to the first answer and say, my, my logic is circular. So I'm basically saying that the apostles had the authority to call Jesus God because Jesus told them they could call him God. And my second answer, you could, you could, uh, you could discard it and say it was circumstantial. Um, so if that's, if that's where you're at, if those are the questions that you're answering, there are some other resources that you should probably go to that I'm not going to get into today. Uh, Ajay preached a great sermon a, a couple of years ago that's on our website that talks about the authority of Scripture. Um, I hope that you'll get into this in your soul care community. 
and really talk about it. But what I'm doing this morning is what Paul was doing when he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. I am coming to you as a believer, speaking to the believers, telling you to hear what Scripture says about itself. It is the Word of God, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. Hear how the psalmist writes about it in, in, in Psalm 19. Just, just pray this with me. As you think about God's Word, the psalmist writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. When we accept God's word for what it is, the word of God, we see the proof worked out in our lives day by day. It changes us. It is something different from the false gospel of Dionysus, or the false gospel of the emperor, or the false gospel of self, which none of those work. And if you've been trying your whole life, you know that none of those work. They leave you empty. You need a Messiah. And that's the gospel that Paul Paul shared. So finally, I want to just go to that third question. Uh, Having answered question number one, um, the message was that Jesus is the Christ. Question number two, Paul had the authority to say that because Jesus gave it to him and because the Thessalonians saw it lived out in their lives. Question number three, what was it about the way the Thessalonians responded to Paul's message that wasn't Paul's message that was so profound and powerful that he encourages them to keep doing it and even tells them that this is how you will survive the rotary ahead? There's something really interesting going on in that that verse. I'm going to read it one more time with some emphasis. Paul writes, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it is, really the word of God, which is at work in the lives of the believers. There's two different words there. The first word is receive, and the second word is accept. There's not a very big difference in English in how we use those two words. And I prefer not to do this, but I think that it's really important for us to understand exactly what's going on there between those two words. Um, In the original text, when he says you received the word of God, he's saying you heard it. You heard what I said. You might have acknowledged it was true, but you could have left it at that. That's what that word received meant in its original context. You heard it. You acknowledged it. You could have put it on the shelf and been done with it. But that's not what the Thessalonians did. Hear what he says. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you didn't just receive it. You didn't set it on the shelf. You accepted it. Now, the word that's there in the original text is really powerful, which is why I'm even talking about it. What it really means in its context, it it talked about how people responded to the traditions of their forefathers. It was as if my parents told me how to celebrate Christmas. And instead of hearing it and being like, oh, that's okay, that's what you did. I heard it. I accepted it. I made it my own. I became a part of it. We bought a Christmas tree every year because that's the tradition of our fathers, and we lived in it. Now, that's sort of a trite example, but that's what the Thessalonians did with the gospel. They accepted it. They internalized it. They lived it. They didn't just receive it and put it on the shelf. Um, So that's really what I'm challenging you to do this morning. If you've heard the word of God, 
and you've received it, I'm challenging you to think about, have you accepted it? This weekend, the, those of us guys that were up at the uh, men's retreat, which was a great time, um, I think we're really challenged with an example of what it looks like to accept the Word of God uh, by a man who was there speaking to us who um, you could clearly tell has been living in the Word of God for 40 years. And as I was up there, one of the most powerful things I came away feeling was, I'm thankful that I've been able to be in seminary for a couple of years, but that would be worthless if I couldn't get to the end of my life and say, I have spent the last 40 40 plus, however many years of my Christian life, swimming in God's Word, accepting it, internalizing it, living in it, memorizing it, speaking it, having it roll off my tongue in conversation. That's my hope and my challenge to you. So as I, as I close this morning, I, I want to repeat two questions for you, and I hope that you'll wrestle with them this week, either in your soul care community or, or on your own. The first one is, have you heard the word of God as the word of God or as the word of men? What does that mean in your life? Have you heard it as the word of truth, or is it still outside the shields in the realm of all the other messages that the culture throws at you? I pray that the answer is, number one, that you've, that you've received it. But beyond that, question number two is, how have you responded to the word of God? Have you received it, acknowledged it as true, heard it, and then put it on the shelf? Or have you accepted it? Have you heard it for what it really is and let it speak into your life? These Thessalonians that Paul was writing to accepted the word of God in such a way that they were prepared to endure severe persecution in a culture where they could have had prosperity because they believed it that deeply. And they didn't just put it on the shelf, they accepted it. So have you received God's word and left it at that? Or have you accepted God's word? I pray that it's the second one. The word of God, which is life-changing and true, is that Jesus is the Christ. When we read God's word, we can know that because Jesus tells tells us it is true and because it bears out fruit in our lives. And when we hear that word of God, we need to not only receive it, we need to accept it, we need to live it, we need to make it our own. That's my prayer for you this morning. Thank you.